You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2000 film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So this is a film set in Mississippi in the late 30s. So this is, think, Depression era, and we follow three uh, convicts on a chain gang. Uh, Pete, Delmar, and Ulysses Everett McGill. Mm-hmm. Pete and Delmar are kind of the more slow-witted sidekicks Yeah, Ulysses Everett McGill. This is directed by the Coen brothers, and the Ulysses is played by George Clooney. So if you're familiar with their works, you know, the George Clooney character is going to be kind of a blowhard. Yeah. Talker, talker, loud mouth. Yeah. Also very Glib, as they describe him at some point in the film, no, Mr. Know-it-all. Yeah, very yeah. vain. <laughs> And the great touch is he's he's got to have that one particular yeah. bland, brand Pepper of hair cream. Hair cream. Every time he's, he wakes up, he's like my hair. <laughs> but they they break out they break out of the chain gang and they go on the run. And the, the what they're why they broke out is because Ulysses says that he has a buried treasure somewhere. He says, "You guys yeah. help me break out. You guys get a third of the share. We all split." Yep. And so while they break out, they get on a hand car on a railway, and they meet this blind old man who foretells them of a prophecy, something along the lines of, you will find a treasure, but not the one you are seeking. Yes. And that starts to get a little bit uh, uh, discontent in the group. Um, Pete is sort of the antagonist of Ulysses. They're always fighting and arguing, and there's a big... And, uh, Delmar is sort of the middleman, but he just tries to be the peacekeeper. They eventually go to uh, Pete's one of Pete's relatives, and they hide out in his barn. Mm-hmm. But while they are sleeping in the barn, his relative sells them out for money. Yeah, and they are being hunted by a lawman very similar of the man with no eyes from cool hands oh yeah yes. that's the first thing that came into yeah, my mind he's all, he always yeah. has a stern never smiles has these glasses so you never see his eyes really. yes he's always hunting them yep and they eventually through a because it's the coen brothers through a wacky series of coincidences and stuff they're able to escape and pretty much throughout the entire movie it is following them just sort of falling in and out of different situations. Yep. And also, one of the things they run into, because they they somehow get famous, they make some money by playing, uh, they, first they meet a black man named Tommy Johnson, who is at the crossroads. Yeah, and, and he, he just tells him he just sold his soul to the devil so that he could guitar. play the guitar. Gee, I wonder who that's supposed yes. to be. Well, it should, you think of Robert Johnson, but there was a blues singer whose name was Tommy Johnson. So yeah, yeah. I feel like, how many uh, blues singers sold their souls to the devil to play the guitar? <laughs> yeah. Like You think Satan, after a while, goes, no, 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 no. It's like, it's too much. Yeah. Maybe play the harmonica or something. I, mean, I didn't want any guitar players. <laughs> But they, uh, then they go to a radio station. 
And if yeah. you see throughout the whole movie the theme of the you know whether it's blues music or bluegrass or folk music, this old timey music is what they call it, but it's yeah. permeating throughout this movie. Yes, and you go to this radio. They, Play Man of Constant Sorrow, which is a famous folk song. Mm-hmm. They call themselves the Soggy Bottom Boys. And they make money, and then while they're leaving, we meet um, the governor of Mississippi, Pappy O'Daniel. He's not in g- good mood. He's uh, his sort of cabinet members are just sycophants. His, his yeah. son's dim-witted. And, yeah, and he's trying because he feels like he's not. He's up for re-election, but he feels the new guy, Homer Stokes, is uh, leading in the polls. So he's trying to figure a way to. Yeah. Keep his power in. Yeah. Homer Stokes is playing the populist card, right, yeah. against the establishment and so forth. And uh, anyway, go ahead. Yes. And, uh, and then they run into, because it's like they said, they're constantly running into things. Another person they run into is Babyface Nelson, who's yes. a famous uh, bank robber, an associate of um, John Dillinger. Right. And uh, so he goes in, they go to a bank, but he's very. Uh, was bipolar he's happy but when somebody calls him babyface a name he doesn't like he then gets all depressed but he gives leaves him some money yeah then they go which is to- hilarious it just cracks me up because you're thinking is he going to react violently to be calling babyface no he reacts just like a child I, would a yeah. baby it's hilarious he just gets mobile like oh fuck and <laughs> yeah. he leaves and they get they get some money and then they go to you know then they run into the so- these three women who are singing this country music yeah in uh, the water, so they're basically the sirens. The sirens. This story yeah. is very reminiscent of the Odyssey. It has it touches some yeah. themes from the Odyssey. They the, yeah. the, the, uh, the women feed them corn liquor and get them drunk, and they wake up. Um, Pete's gone. Yeah. And they're they're by themselves. They still have the money. Yeah. And then they go to a little restaurant and they flash the money around, and that. Uh, Runs into this man named Big Dan Teague, who has an eye patch, just one eye. Yeah. And he's intrigued by the money, so he kind of sells him. He's a Bible salesman, feeding him this line. He takes him out to a picnic. Yeah. And he beats them both up and steals their money. Yep. And he crushes the frog they had because they thought the frog, yeah. the women bewitched uh, Pete and turned him into, into a, a frog. Yes. But Pete's actually been captured again, put back on the chain gang, and he's been interrogated by this. Is the guy uh, Sheriff Cooley is the guy, but the yeah. cool hand Luke Standen, basically. Right. Yeah. And uh, they torture him, and he says, "Do not seek the treasure. It is, you know, it's a setup." He runs into him in a movie theater. Yes. Right. And then eventually, um, we through more like then they um, stumble upon a Ku Klux Klan rally, which is kind of funny because it's like they're about to hang, do a lynching of Tommy Johnson, but. They save him, and we see Big Dan Teague, and who's the Grand Marshal? None other than Homer Stokes, the supposed champion of the little people and yes. the oppressed, and he's yes. the Grand Marshal in the Ku Klux Klan. Yes. But they escape from that, and then later on, Ulysses find out that his wife, Penelope, has remarried, and she's also told yeah. her they have a lot of daughters. I think there's like almost seven or eight children. Yeah. She tells the daughters that their dad died in a... Rail accident? I yeah, I believe that was what it was, yes. So he's angry, and she's moved on, and she's happy. She has a suitor. A suitor, and who is a top political advisor to Homer Stokes. Yes. So they're trying to, he's trying to get get her back, and then they run into her again at this um, political rally for Homer Stokes. Yeah. They fake the, themselves this folk band, play a song, and then the big thing is... They put on fake beards beards and and kind of look bummy on purpose, which is a a little bit of a 
uh, reference to the latter parts of the Odyssey when uh, Odysseus gets home and he poses as a bum, right, and makes his way into the palace. So clearly, I think they're trying to reference that there too. Yeah, yeah. And then they, the big change is because also Papio Daniel's there trying to bribe over the political advisor. The political advisor wants nothing to do with him. Yeah, and then. They play Man of Constant Sorrow. And they, mm-hmm. little they realize while they're shenanigans, Man of Constant Sorrow has been a huge hit. The record recorded, it's been selling like hotcakes. Yes. So they play it, then everybody in the crowd realizes they're the band. They're it's the, the band, yeah, place. right. Then yeah. it gets them big, but Homer Stokes, who's running this rally, he realizes that they're the ones that disrupted his clan rally. Yes. So he, he rants them, say they're bad people, and he outs himself as a Ku Klux Klan supporter. Right. And then everybody's sort of angry with him for cutting off the band. And then that, and they, so they run him out. On a rail. On a rail. <laughs> Literally on a rail. When, and that's when Papio Daniels sees the red he light. See, he the sees story. the political opportunity. Yeah, so he yeah. hops on and yeah. takes over the stage right after the, the middle of the second after they finish. And yeah. gives him this speech of, like, they're great people. I appreciate them. Stokes doesn't like them. Yeah. And he gives them a pardon. Yeah. And everything. So everything's all good. But he gets back with Penelope, who the, the other suitors ran away. Yeah. And she's, you know, they're getting back together, but she he doesn't have her wedding, wedding ring. Right. He has to go back to the, uh, the house. The but, house in, in some lowlands there, some, some kind lowlands. of a cabin. We have to remind everybody this is where he had told his two partners yeah. the treasure was, right? And it turned out it was a lie. Yes. And. So they have to go back, but they later on they early told that that whole area is going to be turned into a dam. It's going to be run over right. with water. So they're going back to get it. Yeah. And then that's when Sheriff Cooley and a couple other people come back, and they're going to hang them, even though they've been pardoned by the governor. He they don't, don't yep. care. They're about to be hanged. Yep. And Ulysses, who's always like his um, one time they run into a baptism, and Delmar gets a baptism and he's you know it totally yeah. changes him because of, but ulysses is mocking the religion he's mocking everything it's stupid yeah but at that time when he's about to be hanged he prays to god to save him yep and right when the minute it's about the rope's about to be dropped the, the flood goes it floods everything they somehow escape yeah and instead of him you, you think he that would be his you know, born again Christian phrase. He, then he kind of calls it off like, "Oh no, it's about the dam." It's like it's just oh, all coincidences. All yes. coincidences. Yeah. Nothing, nothing. Nothing supernatural going on. Yes, and they're saved, and he finds the ring. Well, he thinks he finds, he finds the, ring. the ring, and he goes back with her, and she says, "No, that wasn't that. That's my aunt's ring. That's not my ring." You need to go back, back and get the right one. And then that's the movie. Yes. <laughs> and then that's the movie. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's uh, a it's a good movie. I've seen it quite a few times, and you know, it's the main thing everybody talks about. Is the fact that this movie is, you know, inspiration for the opera was inspired by, yeah, inspired the by it and very, very loosely based on it. But, uh, yeah, you have the same in, in, in the most general terms, the same storyline. A, a what literally these days we would call an odyssey, a big adventure, a long trek with uncertainties and stuff with a goal in mind. And the in the original odyssey, of course, Odysseus, uh, otherwise known as Ulysses, in, in the Roman version of the story. Um, it's a it's a it's a trek back home, a ten year trek back back home after a similarly long Trojan War, as he wants to get back home to uh, Ithaca and his wife Penelope, and uh, 
um, he has to, it, it's considerably more violent than <laughs> this story, but he has to fight off suitors, right? And there's a whole host of them, right? And uh, in the case of Ulysses in this film, he's only got to fight off one suitor. But uh, they're both wanting to get back to their wives. That's the big deal. And they both use craft and cunning. That's the common element here between these two main characters. And I think the Coen brothers realize this. Odysseus is, uh, he's not above uh, 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 tricking people, lying to people, and so forth to, to get back to, uh, get back home. And uh, you see him at se in several episodes in, in the Odyssey. Uh, tricking uh, his his fellow crew members or uh, preventing them from doing what they want in order to achieve that ultimate end. And, of course, he's very famous for uh, tricking um, Polyphemus, the uh, Cyclops, right, to, to get out of that, that, uh, um, that predicament with his men. Um, and you see Ulysses doing the same thing here. He's, he's like Odysseus, a fast talker and able to um, smooth his way into the confidences of other people and then take advantage of that. Um, and uh, so they do a good job, I think, of capturing that common element in the two characters, I think. Um, but, you know, there's not a great deal of similarity in the two stories other than uh, references of characters and, and names and things like that. Um, there's one intriguing thing I read. I'm not sure if I buy it, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know what you think about this, but in the last scene, as they're walking with the daughters, right, and she tells him, you know, that's not the right ring. That's your that's your your aunt's ring. I want the re I want the actual ring. Well, um, in the distance uh, down the street, it, there's a series of it looks like arches, yeah, right, and. Uh, in the in the original Odyssey, um, the the uh, Odysseus ultimately reveals himself to be who he is uh, because Penelope creates a challenge for the suitors, knowing full well that none of them will be able to do it. They they first they have to string Odysseus's bow, which is so strong and has such tensile strength that he's the only guy capable of doing it. Right, and not only that. She's, she, she's thinking, because she's always trying to buy time from these guys, because she does not want to marry any, any of them. They're eating them out of house and home, and they just stay there. They're just the, the, the ultimate squatters, right? And so the other thing she realizes, realizes will help buy time and ultimately make sure that none of these guys is allowed to marry her, right, by tradition or custom, is she says, not only do you have to string this bow this way, but... Um, there is a, are a series of um, axes that I'm going to put in a line, and there's a very narrow little opening in each one that, you know, what they're used to hang on walls, rings or something like that. Notice the reference to rings, by the way. Um, you have to not only string that bow, but I'm going to line these things up. You have to shoot that arrow straight through all those rings. And she knows no, none of these guys can do that, Right. So the, in, the, in the story, uh, Odysseus, who has, thanks to Athena, disguising him, essentially, as this old beggar, um, who the suitors just terribly tease and kick and, and pick, pick on him, and he, he, just, he just says, keep going, keep going, 
keep going. I'm going to use the anger you're developing in me to really take you guys out <laughs> right at the end, which he does with his son Telemachus, right? Um, but um, so the, the, all the guys, two or three of the guys, I forget how many, uh, try to do this and fail. They can't even string the bow. Um, so the, the bum says, let me try it. And he knows he can do it, right? So he he walks over to it. He strings the bow. He grabs an arrow. He takes aim, and he shoots all the way through. And one of the images you really get in the original poem and is this uh, image of that row of openings, right? So this one person, I, I, like I said, I'm not sure if I buy this interpretation of the end of the film because it is pretty tangential right but they say that reference one to the to the ring and two that shot with that series of kind of like archways going into the distance is the cohen brothers very subtle reference to that last episode in the odyssey i don't know if that's true we should run up the fact that when making the film when they yeah. were in the process of working on the script they at that point had never read yeah. the Odyssey. Yeah. I think later on, as they were more familiar with it and they were reading it while working on the script, that's when they decide to have more references and more yeah. to it. So yeah. it might be true, but you know, because I would say it's as much of one of the things I has is this more southern yeah. than Greek mythology because yeah. there is a lot of references to real life characters in the south like we talked about tommy yep. johnson who himself is a blues is a blues musician at this time. yes yeah also about that story of selling their soul to the devil which i feel like we've joked about is like half the old blues guitar players but that's more most famous one is robert johnson <laughs> yes and you also yeah. have Babyface Nelson, who was, this was the time of the public enemies with Dillinger. Yeah. But also at the same time was Bonnie and Clyde and the whole story of the depression and people saying, well, they're robbing banks. Banks were doing this to families during the Great Depression. So are they really all that bad? Yeah. But even, and also the politicians, the, there was a Papio Daniel. He was a governor of Texas instead of mississippi but he had the thing past the biscuits pappy radio flower hour which was same thing folk and country music yep and even the homer stokes he was sort of based on a, a jimmy davis who was a louisiana governor he recorded music yeah and i believe he also was very pro segregationist so bringing into the fact that he was a clan member yeah also the 20s and 30s saw, after the birth of a nation from 1950, saw the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, particularly. Mm -hmm. So you are seeing a lot of this Southern mythology or you know, Depression era mythology yeah. mixed in with this Creek mythology. Yeah, and, and you're 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 also seeing references, I think, to the uh, uh, because it's central to the film to the as it were the the rise of popular music, popular recorded music which was big in those times. I, I found the, uh, the uh, uh, small radio station and the guy running the radio station, I forgot his name. Um, he's Mr. Lund, the blind Mr. manager. Mr. Lund, uh, the blind manager. Again, maybe that's a reference to Homer, the blind bard, who knows. But I, when I saw that and I saw in the music world, um, 
this intentional portrayal of integration in a band. It made me think of Alan Lomax. Alan Lomax, mm-hmm. as you know, uh, went all around the Deep South in the twenties, uh, thirties, and forties. He might have even gone into the fifties doing this, but he uh, he was uh, enamored with Southern music, blues, bluegrass, and he recorded everybody. A lot of the first recordings of blues artists that, that uh, you hear were actually done by Alan Lomax, and. So while you see the deep uh, segregationist attitude and the you know references to uh, intermarriage and uh, being evil and bad, yeah, keeps up. right uh, on the part of Stokes and the in the in the also accurate portrayal of many politicians who either were secretly or not so secretly members of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, that that's actual. Right, that actually happened. You see all of that kind of negative uh, side of the South of the twenties and thirties, um, but you're seeing this more positive side, this beginning of this integration, and how what drove it in a lot of respects was music, uh, because you had a lot of crossover um, in popular music between blues, country music, bluegrass, and things like that. And you, you had. Uh, cross influences between racial groups in that way, so I, I think that he's the Coen Brothers were wanting to get a, a more complex view of the South yes. across, not just simply oh, it was uh, hopelessly racist and uh, segregationist, uh, but there was this uh, beginning of this kind of uh, popular culture integration going on and i think they do a good job uh, doing that with with the uh, johnson character if there is a negative portrayal because some people say like you said like there's one side who say it portrays the south too nice like this is the 20s and 30s segregation what is at its most evil i mean the lynchings they showed here yeah lots of you know black men were falsely accused of rape many many times and hanged and that's what kill kill a mockingbird yeah well other people who say like oh it makes them you know, it's it's not hard enough, or it makes them look stupid. And I don't necessarily think it necess- makes them look stupid. I mean, this is the Coen Brothers; they're known for kind of crazy, goofy movies, characters. Yes, yes. But um, one of the things I will say: you see the music and how it's kind of manipulated by each of the politicians. Yes, is you have Homer Stokes, who's used a lotting of the a lot of the folk music and saying like, "Oh, I'm a." My champion, I he literally has a little guy saying, I, "I'm yes. here for the little guy." He yes, brings out a broom and I'm sweeping away the evils of Papio Daniel. And Papio yeah. Daniel ke- uses the soggy bottom boys to kind of fall back into public favor, and he has that radio show, which yes. the real Papio Daniel had. Yeah, but, but you notice is all that is going on uh, at that last scene in in the big music hall. Uh, what's the audience's response to these two politicians? One of them, they re, they write him out on ta- mm-hmm. the, the segregationist. They write him out of town. Literally, get, they get a rail, put him on the rail, and yeah. move him out of the hall. Right. The other guy, their 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 reaction is almost you know shut up and get out of the way and let the land band play. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I think that's reflective of the fact that the the popular music at the time. Um, uh, created this more direct connection between the musicians and the audience that ultimately, I think along with other aspects of popular culture where integration occurred, 
probably was more of a driving force in getting rid of the kind of bad behavior you saw in the South than perhaps uh, political um, activities or uh, legislation. Um, uh, it, it brought to mind for me um, the importance of athletics in the history uh, of, of um, the civil rights movement and um, integration of black and white culture. Um, so I think they're trying to show, you know, this is something that's organic that developed thanks to this uh, um, interaction between ethnic groups that grew organically in the form of music, just as it did similarly in the, in the world of sports. And the pop, uh, politicians, uh, to some extent, were maybe a little cynically glomming on to something that was going to happen in any case. Um, uh, I think maybe that's a message in this film. I mean, and also, you can think today, like, how many, whenever there is a, a presidential election or something smaller, like mayoral or senator, so on and so forth, how many times when there's a rally or something, they're using somebody's song? Oh, yeah. And how many times do they either they go with it or they even prefer, heck, I'll even perform at your rally, or it's the other way saying, please cease my use immediately. Yes. Because there was a one musician, I forget his name, he was more of a um, composer, Canadian composer, but mm-hmm. recently he talked about how he's not a Trump supporter, but he heard his music in a Trump rally, and people are saying, he said he didn't care because it's like, well, that's how they're using my music. I mean, I'm not supporting the guy, but I'm not going to give gonna... him that cease and desist letter because he's using it however he wants. Yeah. It's an interesting way. To, to, Again, yeah. pro- politicians glomming on to popular culture, trying to take advantage of it for their own ends. And I, I think that's a big... Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how old these guys were when they made this film. They were about in their 40s. In their 40s. 40s. So they were probably thinking along these lines. Um, and and I, that's why I, I particularly like the audience reaction in the film. It was literally, even with Pappy O'Daniel, who comes across as the more likable of the two politicians, you see him still clearly portrayed as an opportunist, taking advantage of the audience's love of these musicians, this integrated uh, band, Right. And and, and, and the reaction is just get out of the way and let them play, right? And he's savvy enough to realize, I better do that, right? So he gets out of the way. Um, but again, um, the, it shows, I think, uh, kind of underneath the uh, um, uh, cultural vestiges of racism, there's this, this kind of wisdom that's growing out of the popular culture that ends up integrating people without forcing them to integrate. Uh, it's an organic growth. And I think they're trying to show that, yeah, uh, that you, contrast, yeah. you know. When you talk about the Southern politicians at that time, you see Papio Dana, because he's, he's not exactly a clean-cut politician. Oh, no, he's not at all. He's trying to bribe Absolutely. He's, he's still doing the same. <laughs> yeah. It was the time of bossism. Yeah. Which, like, you had basically these governors or mayors ruling it almost like a dictator, I think. Which I was interesting, because when you know a bit about Southern politics in the mm-hmm. early 20th century the big name i was thinking of was huey, huey long yep. and for those who don't know there was a famous novel called all the king's men which was based on his life they turned it to a film in the 40s that won best picture but mm-hmm. they people basically said he was a demagogue like he ruled oh, yeah. louisiana basically like a dictator and eventually he was assassinated i believe in the mid 30s but that that kind of guy who just has that bossism has that absolute power yeah and you know they had uh, bossism was rampant in, in the north too in the, in new york and so Boss forth Tweed of Tammany yeah, Hall. Ex- absolutely um 
And again, a highly caricatured version of this kind of a politician. But if you do look back in the, in the in, at, at photos and listen to recordings of people like Huey Long, it's not too far, too much of an exaggeration. These guys were very much like that. And uh, again, um, tried to wield their powers in, in, in ways uh, by kind of grandstanding and, and prom promising largesse to, to especially to traditionally uh, underrepresented or underprivileged communities. Um, Particularly with Huey Long, he reached out more to the black community. He, yep. was, he was also very, uh, said Roosevelt didn't go far enough with his New Deal. In time when you liked the New Deal, you were basically considered almost socialist or a communist. He said yeah. he doesn't go far enough. And yeah. uh, one of the interesting things is, even though if you read about him, he wasn't very enlightened as far as his views on racism but um but he knew how to he, take care take opportunity he, yeah and yeah. huey newton one of the most famous black panthers he was named after huey long yeah that's right that's right uh so again i think that's a subtle message in this film um it's almost like ignore the politicians pay attention to the currents and cross currents in popular culture and, and, and you're going to see where things are going to go and I think it's ultimately kind of a positive message. It's saying even back then with all this going on, uh, the main current was toward a uh, more progressive view of things in terms of um, integration between uh, racial groups. And it's organic. It's going to happen naturally. People aren't naturally uh, um, prone. And I think this is a very positive message. Uh, people are not naturally prone to People are not naturally prone to segregate is the hopeful message here. Um, again, because um, uh, it, it, it kind of, uh, in the music world, it developed organically. You, you had people, didn't matter what race they were, when they heard talent, they recognized that talent. Didn't matter what the skin color of the musician was, or the singer was, uh, they recognized the talent and they felt a, a need. And I'm thinking of Alan Lomax again here, but also little small town radio stations like they're uh, portrayed in the film. They, they thought, I've got to get this out. This is good stuff. It's also going to help me out in my uh, career too, right? Um, and again, it happened organically. And I think as... The thing, because this is set in the 30s, and he's obviously we're going to talk about the effect of the Depression, particularly on the South, mainly how um, Pete's brother, because mm -hmm. of the financial difficulties, is having to sell out his brother to the authorities. <laughs> yes. And the, the distrust of the bankers, because when the first thing he does when he goes to the house is uh, his younger son uh, is um, nephew pulls out a shotgun. He goes, are you a banker? Yeah, yeah. I've been ordered to shoot bankers. Yeah, right. If you're familiar with the work of the Coen brothers, one of their biggest influences is Preston Sturgis. He was a filmmaker, did a lot of comedies in the 30s and 40s, and one of his most famous is a film called Sullivan's Travels. And it is about this screenwriter. It's during the Depression, and he's known for goofy, kind of slapsticky comedies, and he's tired of doing that. He really wants to make a film, because it's during the Depression, about the struggles of the common man. And there yeah. is, the, 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 it's a book he was inspired by, these struggles called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. And the big thing is he is trying constantly to go around, find, you know, talk to 
go to Hoovervilles and go all these things. And the curious thing, he's always coming back to Hollywood. He always gets stuck back. Yeah. But eventually, like, he gets into a really bad situation. But through his struggles, he realizes that that's not going to help people making stuff about stuff they already know. Yeah. And because he, he, he has one scene where they watch a, I think, a Mickey Mouse or so, uh, animated classic. And all the people who are poor or destitute, it's actually in a church run by a, a run by a black uh, black church black run church but convicts are allowed to go there mm-hmm. and it just everybody just it brings down the house they're all laughing and yes. having a good time and he sort of learns the lesson like i'm not doing our brother where i but they give him the chance like you'll get to make it you get to make your big important movie he goes no i'll just keep doing the comedies because that's you know that that helps us and that helps us cope so you kind of it's you have because you have this all this movie cause you could do a serious more grounded film about this but yeah. having it you know the typical Coen brothers wacky fashion it still brings that home that was brought up in that movie yeah that's a good point and uh, that also that scene you're talking about it's reflected in the Coen film isn't it mm-hmm. in that film where they're in the movie theater I'm kind of curious now that you mentioned this uh, and the convicts are brought in to watch the movie as well and that's when they discover Pete's still alive right um, and not a frog <laughs> but uh I'm kind of curious now. The film that they're showing—it's not that. It's not no. okay. I was wondering about that. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's some other Sturgis film. Yeah. No. Okay. But uh, interesting. Yeah, and that's almost a, a more direct lifting and uh, of of that film you're talking about than anything Homeric here. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, they, they probably. I mean, they, it's not like ripping off, but they probably are more influenced by Preston Sturgis. I feel, especially in their early work, than any other film. I think that that yeah, I think that bears standing. Yes. All right, getting close to the end of my questions. Anything else you want to bring up before we sign off? Um, one thing I did want to bring, you have to bring it up because the soundtrack to this movie is probably more famous than the movie itself. I believe the year the soundtrack was released. It won not just soundtrack of the year at the Grammys. It won album mm-hmm. of the year. That's how big it was. It was a big seller. Yeah. I believe uh, later on, not all the people who worked on the film, but it was covers. But like Alison Krauss, she's a big country bluegrass singer. She did a lot of covers called "Down from the Mountain." Mm-hmm. You can't talk about this movie without talking about the music. Yeah, and again, that, that brings us back to that main theme of the Coen Brothers. I think the thing they were again. I'm going to beat a dead horse here. I think one of the, the main thing they wanted to emphasize here was the power of music to uh, uh, reach across ethnic divides and, and unite people, right? And you see that in the person of that band, but you also see that in the and reflected in the larger social community here that's represented in that last that second to last scene or so when uh, the two politicians are trying to glom onto and use the musicians. Um, Again, I think they're showing that that power of music to connect people that would otherwise not be connected, um, the power of the recognition of talent, and the power of wanting to um, uh, disseminate that talent for other people to enjoy is a more powerful uh, uh, integrative influence than anything the politicians can do. And I think he says... I think, again, I'm beating a dead horse here. I think they want to just say these kinds of things happen organically. That's not not to say we shouldn't make political efforts, legal efforts to improve society. But at least in this case, it happened uh, naturally. Uh, And thanks, interestingly enough, to the invention of recorded music. Technology had something to do with it. 
and uh, uh, maybe I'm stretching here and grasping at straws a little bit here and maybe being a little hopeful here as well. But uh, maybe the message is, you know, there are uh, perhaps uh, new tech, our new technologies these days might be able to do something like that. Yes, there are dangerous dark sides to these technologies we use, but there are these potential unifying forces that they do. Social media, for instance. Um, one of the things it does, uh, one of the more positive things it does, is it allows people to um, quickly disseminate uh, uh, photos and other kinds of news of things going on, either good or bad. And it makes it very much harder for those that are in power, politicians among them, to hide facts, much harder than it used to be. Uh, so that's one positive influence. So uh, something similar happened with recorded music technology in the 20s and 30s as well. And radio. Don't forget that. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcasts, Real Sounds, Rich Episode, dedicated to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. And for our next show, our movie in the Halloween mood will be I Am Legend from 2007, the one with Will Smith. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying, do not seek the treasure. <laughs>